So turning fantasy and sci-fi novels into RPG settings and vice versa isn't a new idea. It's been done many times in the past and is still done frequently today. Are there any books or book series that you'd like to play a tabletop RPG in, uh, whether it's been adapted or not? Off the top of my head, maybe the Ender Game series. Yeah. Yeah. Like the first book, it's very basic intro, but in the second, third, fourth book, it goes a lot deeper into like the lore behind it and the fact that the main character essentially committed like xenocide, genocide of a species. Yeah. So I think it'd be cool to play either as the bugger, as they called them in that book, or in the aftermath of that, trying to deal with like, your group was the one that wiped out a species. How do you handle it? I I, I read Ender's Game. I liked Ender's Game. I saw the movie. It was all right. It was terrible. Uh, yeah, I, I, it was, look, I've seen a lot of shitty science fiction. It's, it's right at the bottom of the middle for me. But um, it was not the book by any means. But I never read any of the other stuff. And I was going to dig into it during the pandemic. And then did Orson Scott Card do something problematic? Or am I making that up? I believe he's massively homophobic. Is that what it is? Yeah, that's why I dropped the series. And I found that out about it. Well, I mean, fuck that guy and everything about it. Yeah. That's too bad. That always sucks. It's why I don't Harry Potter anything anymore as well. Um, But uh, Kyle, anything off the top of your head? Uh, yeah, so I just finished uh, the Malazan Book of the Fallen series, or at least the first bit of the series. There's like a 10 book, uh, like main story, and then there's a whole bunch of like other side stories that go on that kind of fill out uh, the history of it. So it's written by two guys who are uh, archaeologists and anthropologists. So it has like some of the deepest lore I have ever read, and it has some cool ass shit in it. Like, uh, velociraptors with swords at the end of their hands that uh, fly around on floating castles. Uh, also, uh, Neanderthals that are undead, who basically like uh, went on, made themselves undead uh, so that they can continue an eternal war with another one of like the original creator races. Like it's, it's fucked. Like the whole book spans about like 300,000 years in terms of like yeah. history that goes on. That sounds- and it was... Yeah, that sounds fucking great. I, I'd be all, yeah. but it's not dry like a summer alien. No, no, no. It's really good. It's like uh, top three fantasy series I have ever read. Um, for me, uh, I'm going to want to play in. Ah, uh, fuck. If I can be perfectly honest, it would be Firefly. I would. I know they've got a board game, and and there might be a tabletop role playing game, but I would play the shit out of Firefly. I know there's a really good Star Trek one out there that I'm moderately interested in as well, but it would be Firefly. Yeah, that'd be pretty good. Space Cowboys. Yeah, and everybody gets a job, and all the jobs are criminal-based, and like you can be like the enforcer, or the mechanic, or the thief, or the like. It just sounds fun. Yeah. And no magic. Yeah, it's pretty simple. But I gotta ask, you you dropped at the beginning, Kyle. You said it's mm. top three. What are your other two fantasy series? Oh, man. Uh, the Dresden Files. Is going to be one of them. And what's the other one? I don't know off the top of my head. I tried the Dresden Files. I got halfway through the first book and I found it so navel gazing and look at how important I am. And like I, the main character, he's like he's just so fucking insufferable. Just the really. Oh, I couldn't handle him. I had to put it down because 
every everything he said was just like i want to punch you in the fucking like i went to high school with these guys i was friends with nerds in high school this guy was yeah. like the worst one in the circle of friends okay so th- the first half of the first book is honestly the worst part of the whole series it gets better from there like I, when i gave it the book to anthony i literally said to him you just have to get past the first half of the book and then it gets better right and yeah there is like a lot of navel gazing i understand that i also heard like you know um a little misogynistic i i would yep. argue it's very male fantasy based but i don't think that any of the female characters in the book are brought down to just their looks right like there's a lot of strong female characters in it and yeah there's a lot of like beauty but i don't know I, it's not just the women that they do it to like they also talk about like these like perfect male vampires that like basically okay. feed off of sex kind of thing is it just the the lens that we're seeing it through then like this this character uh what do you mean specifically like is a character just hyper focused on because i mean it's from his point of view right is it yeah would you say it's the character that's hyper focused on this shit or is it the author author yeah Yeah. i got halfway through that the first encounter with fairies and i'm like i gotta i gotta put this shit down like yeah i I couldn't get back to it but if it gets better i might take another stab at it i have dave's copy of of the first book and it has been sitting um in a pile of shit that i should probably give back to people uh and so i I might crack it open again when i get a sec um james do you have a favorite like fantasy series or when was the last time you read a book not a favorite in particular I kind of just like any series that I can kind of turn my mind off and just read or, in my case, listen to. I usually do a bunch of audiobooks while I'm at work. Yeah. So something that I can, like, it's interesting, intriguing enough, but not enough that it will take my full focus while I'm at work, but also interesting enough that it keeps me occupied at work. So anything that kind of fits that category, I'll read or listen to. Fair enough. I should really start listening to books. I I spend enough time in the car. I should do that. Yeah, I find PDFs online and then just use text-to-speech to listen to books because sometimes paying for them is not worth my time. You know what? That's fair. Welcome to the It's a Mimic podcast, where you never know what you're going to get. Welcome to another It's a Mimic episode where we continue our conversation on lore in Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition. I'm Adam and with me today are Kyle and James and this episode is called Dragonlance, like a soth to the flame. Uh, That's really funny and really dark and you'll understand why later. Uh, In this episode of the It's a Mimic podcast, this panel of Dungeon Masters will visit one of the D&D settings with the richest lore and history. The recent book, Dragonlance, Shadow of the Dragon Queen, does a decent job of presenting the world and some key players. But there is a lot of legacy information that is missing. Before we jump into this, I want to ask, how familiar is everyone with Dragonlance before researching this episode? Let's grab dice and roll initiative. I got a 14. Got a 12. Uh, I am grabbing my dice. Six. Uh, All right, so me first. Um... I knew nothing about it. I have seen the dozens and dozens and dozens of books on bookshelves my entire life. And I was always the sci-fi nerd that was like, fantasy, that's just science fiction for dumb people. And that's what I thought, because, you know, you can't handle the science. 
um until i was about 16 or 17 and i started like actually branching out from shitty science fiction like teen science fiction novels and um i uh i never bothered to get into Dragonlance. i always thought that just based on the covers alone that it was the most cheesy over the top like classic fantasy the shit that you're supposed to roll your eyes at the same way that like when you see a you know when you see a romance novel what you're into when you see like the harlequin romance novel cover right when you have fabio with the bare chest you don't pick it up even if you read romance you're like you know what you're getting into and Dragonlance had the most dragony lanciest fantasiest bullshit that i ever saw in most of the covers and so i, I literally judge books by their covers and and fucking shied away from them so um and then i never bothered to explore them in D because there was always eberron or greyhawk or like learning the forgotten realms all the way through fifth edition like there's other things to do and uh dragonlance was just it, it like it died out in the 2010s right around the time that i would have started giving a shit and uh i don't know it was, it's always been a blind spot up until right before this uh this latest book came out for me dragonlance is still an entire blind spot i wasn't something i delved into before or even now at this point uh i read one book and i hated it and then i didn't read any more do you know which book it was uh the very first one i okay. can't remember the name of it off the top of my head uh, i will tell you it's going to come up here shortly yeah but it is i found it just the writing style very annoying because it's like five characters and it constantly jumps between their perspectives with like no warning right it'll just be like a paragraph change and then it's like it through a different character's perspective and it's just, i found it really annoying and i don't know just not that great i found it very kind of basic what's interesting is i think we all will have run across Dragonlance late in our fantasy careers, right? Whereas it's one of those seminal things that I think you're supposed to pick up when you're a teen. I know that Dan and Jeff both picked up Dragonlance and fucking loved it when they were younger. And it has a special place in their hearts as a result. The same way that like, I introduced a, a friend of mine to Star Wars when he was in his late teens. And he watched like the first two movies and went yeah man like yeah, i get it it's good and shit but it's not like i'm never gonna watch it again i don't care and it's one of those things that if you don't if you're not into it by the time that you're like 13 you're not going to be into it right yeah i can see that i get that a lot with people uh in terms of wheel of time right yeah it was like their intro to fantasy i read it as an adult and couldn't stand it yeah same I, didn't I never tried it. it was I wasn't given a book till so. I was about 19, and I absolutely hated it. What was, okay, what did you grow up reading then? Uh, any young adult fantasy of every genre, just about. I was an avid reader when I was a kid. I would do probably two or three books a month. Yeah. So my parents just got me whatever series had more than one book in it to keep me occupied for the rest of the month. I, uh, I was introduced to um jurassic park the movie when i was 10 years old and i begged my mom to buy me the book and she bought it for me not knowing just how dense and and complicated that book was but it had dinosaurs so i ate it up i loved that shit i was like and this was okay this was like 1993 so i went to the school library and found the book that mentioned cloning so i could try to understand more like there were there were not resources for me to like look this shit up but i started just devouring michael crichton and then someone i don't know why said well if you like michael crichton you're gonna love stephen king 
And then I've read every single Stephen King novel. So like that's that's my standard. And like my favorite fantasy series of all time is The Dark Tower because it's fucking wild. It's absolutely insane. But yeah, I'm, that's pretty great. I have trouble with classic tropes at this point because I've been reading people that subvert it or that take it way past the regular boundaries, right? So, Kyle, what were you? What did you grow up reading? Uh, I grew up reading Redwall. That was like my introduction to fantasy, and then I read that a bunch as a kid, and then I stopped reading for a while. And did you then, find girls? is that what it was? No, I was not popular enough for girls in high school. Uh, I just, I don't know. I got into different things. I couldn't like finish a book. And then I read The Odyssey yeah, and other kind of like, I guess, I don't know what you consider like 1984 um, and like Brave New World, stuff like that. It's so, like science fiction-ish yeah. kind of thing. Um, and then, yeah. And then I got back into fantasy, I think with probably the Dresden Files as like I early 20s. When did you guys read Lord of the Rings for the first time? That's a good question. Or The Hobbit. Like, when when did you get introduced to Tolkien? How old The Hobbit? Well before the movies came out, but I didn't read Lord of the Rings till after the movies. Because we read The Hobbit uh, as our family, because we used to read together. So we all read The Hobbit, but I read The Lord of the Rings to myself. So you would have been, like, late teens? By the time I got to Lord of the Rings, yeah. Yeah. I read The Hobbit in grade eight. And Lord of the Rings? And I never actually read The Lord of the Rings. Oh, really? Yeah. I read... I read the Lord of the Rings when I was 17. I think it was, I was my last year of high school and I read the Hobbit in like 2019. I was well into my thirties by the time I got around to the Hobbit and I devoured it in like a weekend. Um, I appreciate it for what it is, but it's not Lord of the Rings. I just, I'm trying to get a context for like, we are not Dragonlance fans and we're about to talk about Dragonlance. Um, and I just want to like, <laughs> Kyle's coming at it from, I hate it. And James is like, ne- never even fucking seen one. And I'm like, I have read a couple of them now, and I understand their purpose in the landscape. So this yeah. is not going to be the pro Dragonlance, you know, jerk off that every other fucking video or podcast is going to do for this. So it's going to be interesting. Okay. Curious. Hate is a strong word. I okay. don't hate it. Right. It's just it wasn't for me. And I didn't. I mean, also, I think Dragonlance has been picked up by a couple of authors. So I might have. The first one I read might have kind of jaded me to the rest of them. Um, but... let, let, let me go through it. You're gonna you're gonna understand the scope of this here in a sec. Okay. All right. So before I get into it, though, let's cut to an ad break. We've previously covered quite a bit in our discussion on lore in fifth edition. For all of those episodes and more, you can follow or subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and dozens of other podcast apps. If you would like to support us, you can donate through the website, check out our store, or join our Patreon and get access to other episodes and series. If you would like to pay for some ad space on It's a Mimic, or just send a shout out to a friend, please reach out to us through our email and website that are listed in the show notes below. The rest of this week holds a couple of very interesting episodes that I don't feel anyone else on the internet is talking about. Of course, tomorrow, we return to Rokugan with Roman and Megan, and they start to get into more of the nitty-gritties of the daily life and what it means to be a samurai. But then on Thursday, in the Campaign Builder, we sit down and discuss an aspect of D&D that most DMs have flirted with, but not necessarily sat down to work through the intricacies of and that is guerrilla warfare. 
A lot of dungeon masters will jump on the idea of ambushing from the darkness, but there are so many creatures out there, so many humanoids, from lizard folk to grung, to even some orc or elf tactics that really rely on the idea of waging war on their own terms. All patrons, Copper Wormling tier and above, will have the opportunity to listen to this episode and uh, weigh in on our Patreon Discord. But before we get to any of that, let's get back to the episode. Okay, so the story goes, I'm going to talk about the publication and how it ties to D&D before we get into the actual campaign setting, because like I say, it's important to know the context of this, um, because there's a lot of evolution. There is a lot of lore in this, and it seems like it's super fucking dense, but it earns the lore just with the sheer number of publications. So the people that are mostly in charge of it are uh, Tracy Hickman and Margaret Weiss. And Hickman and Weiss are the two that are, they wrote the first book, and I'm going to get into that a little bit first, but Tracy Hickman had a little bit of a tabletop role-playing game cred in the beginning. So he started working for TSR in the early 80s, which was the company that owned D&D originally, not Wizards of the Coast. Uh, he built a couple of tabletop role-playing games. One of them was called Pharaoh, I think. Um, and uh, he was instrumental in shifting D&D away from dungeon crawls and into more narrative storytelling. When uh, he got his hands on AD&D, we started moving away from this idea of can you beat my friend's dungeon and more into the idea of can we defeat the god, save the princess. Like there was a narrative through thought instead of just get loot level up. As a matter of fact, he's also responsible for creating Ravenloft with his wife, Laura. Uh, and Laura Hickman is kind of in the background of a lot of his creative efforts as well. The two of them um, created Ravenloft. I believe the story goes, although I didn't research it for this episode because I am a fraud. I think the story goes with the two of them created a Halloween session for their friends of AD&D. And uh, it was set in the Ravenloft setting. And then that became an annual tradition that they would come back and revisit this gothic horror setting for D&D. And then he started to write it down and took it to TSR. And they like established the idea of Barovia and Ravenloft in general. So he's got a little bit of cred here. And there was one day um, back in the early to mid 80s where he was on a road trip. Uh, I believe, with his wife, and they started to develop the idea of a setting where dragons were actually fucking scary again instead of just ridiculous monsters that sat in the belly of dungeons. Um, and so that's when they created the idea for Dragonlance, and they kind of workshopped the world a little bit. He then wanted to take it in a different direction, so he pitched the idea of writing a trilogy of novels, but he had no experience. He's not an author. And Kyle, this is, this is where you're dislike comes into play like this guy was not an author um however he had a lot of storytelling experience uh he was introduced then to margaret weiss and the two of them sat down and wrote dragons of autumn twilight which is the first novel set in Dragonlance, and part one of the trilogy known as the chronicles as of now there have been roughly 160 Dragonlance novels not including DD yes. books and gaming material for a a number of years in the 90s and early 2000s, they were releasing a new novel every month. But it's not just them doing it. There are dozens and dozens and dozens released through the 80s, 90s, and aughts, but it really fell off in the last decade. There's only been four published since 2010, and there's only two more planned right now. 
Margaret Weiss is attached to only 34 of the titles. Nine of the projects uh, were done without Tracy Hickman even. So Hickman has only done 25. And that includes the two that are going to come out. Like he's only attached to less than a sixth of, of this overall. Because this was a... Um, a intellectual property that was opened up to have many many people come in and have input the star wars expanded universe was like that as well right where just any author could come in pick a point in time and write some stories in this point of time there was kind of a general overall agreement and there were like editors in chief and stuff to make sure you weren't killing off luke skywalker but like there were there was really a lot of room for independent and different authors to come in and tell their own stories in the setting. And you're going to kind of feel that when we get to the lore portion of this episode. There are also a number of collections of short stories and anthologies and all sorts of young adult fiction in this setting as well, some of which is also written by Weiss and Hickman. And that brings the total to over 190 different published books that are just a narrative, like novels and collections of tales. Um, and all of the novels that Weiss and Hickman have done are really the um, pinnacles of the tent poles. They all get uh, limited edition hardcover releases, but not every every one of the Dragonlance books does, right? According to Wikipedia, Weiss and Hickman have been on bestseller lists over 20 times, and over 22 million books of theirs have been sold. So it may not be for you, Kyle, but it's for a lot of people. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. No, I I have no doubt. And I'm not trying. I'm not trying to like shit on what people like, right? We all have different interests. We everything what attracts us to a story is different for everybody, right? And you have to imagine that the writing style and the different narrative tropes and the different timelines, because there's a couple thousand years where people are telling stories across, right? So like, there will be trilogies that Weiss and Hickman never touch, right? With characters that they've never heard of and that have fan followings. And so we also have to remember that this was fantasy in the eighties and nineties. And that puts it in the era of high fantasy with familiar tropes, things that we recognize now as being boring and mundane were established back then. And we're going to get that a lot in the Dragonlance setting, right? Cause you have knights on horsebacks, carrying lances, fighting fire-breathing dragons. That is a big part of what Dragonlance is. The setting has also been featured in video games and comics, and it's even been mentioned a couple of tracks um, by a couple of European metal bands. Like, it, it's got quite a reach to it. And, of course, there's an animated direct-to-DVD movie starring the voices of Lucy Lawless and Kiefer Sutherland, among other celebrities. So it's a pretty decent intellectual property, or at least it was um, for a while. It's been around in D&D since its first AD&D adventure module in 1984. It got its first campaign setting book in 87, and it flirted briefly with using cards as part of D&D in 1996, where you would like flip cards at certain points and different events would happen. And I don't remember this at all, but I get the impression that it was like um, how they would handle things like mass combat because there's a lot of wars in Dragonlance. Um, there was an updated uh, version of Dragonlance for 3.5 in 2003. I remember there were a handful of uh, of at least magazines and a couple of books. It was skipped in 4th edition altogether and is obviously one of the later publications in 5th edition. Uh, it is so far down the list now that it came out after Eberron, Ravnica, Theros, Ravenloft, and Strixhaven campaign settings. Uh, it beat the much maligned Spelljammer release 
and the currently anticipated Planescape campaign setting, but its release has been one that people have been side-eyeing since it was announced. In 5th edition, it has been paired with the premium board game Warriors of Kryn. Kryn is spelled K-R-Y-N-N. That is the world on, of Dragonlance. So the pair has carried an incredibly hefty price tag. Uh, I ended up getting it for Christmas uh, right after it came out, um, but it was over $200 Canadian. I checked the price tag afterwards and like, it's intense. Um, the board game itself is pretty fun. It doesn't feel like D&D, but I can see how it can be used as a tool to enhance a, a campaign setting. I'm not sure I would play it outside of, of that, though. It just doesn't have the flavor to it. Um, months after the game was released, separately from the campaign setting book, and like for the first few months of its life, you couldn't buy the, the board game without buying this deluxe package for 200 bucks. Uh, by the time the people had the opportunity to finally go spend just 110 bucks on a board game, everyone like stopped giving a shit. They'd moved on to the next D&D product and, and it was over, right? So yeah, $200 is a big investment to make in something you yeah. don't know what the product's going to be like. Yeah, and that's just it is Wizards doesn't have a great track record for uh, board games. They release a lot of board games that are D&D flavored, but they're not like, hey guys, do you want to come over and play another round of this awesome fucking pastime like it's not that's it, not what it is i'd rather just play D D, and most people would if you can get three or four people together to play a board game play D D. right the diehard fans still hold the campaign setting close to their hearts and a lot of people i've spoken to actually discovered dragonlance before D D and weren't aware that it was actually a part of D D until much later but the franchise is clearly dying out in popularity and whether you blame the varying quality of products amazon killing brick and mortar bookstore chains Weiss and Hickman's legal issues because they tried to sue Wizards of the Coast in 2020 over an alleged $10 million worth of uh, breach of contract nonsense that has since been dropped without being settled. So nobody knows what that was about. Um, but maybe you blame the fact that classic fantasy has evolved since the 80s and 90s, which is why I expect, Kyle, and it's not your cup of tea. It's not mine either, if I can be honest. But regardless, Dragonland yeah. seems to be quietly just trucking along, doing its own thing, abandoned by everyone except the diehardest of fans and the original two authors and a vocal minority in the D&D sphere online. So that's kind of the background. Let's grab dice. I want to ask you guys a couple of questions. 16. Oh, 19. We're last with a 14. That's impressive, guys. Uh, Kyle, how much fantasy do you read? Like, percentage of the shit that you read, how much of it is fantasy? Oh, 75%, probably. Yeah. James? I uh, would say 75 to 80% between Western and Eastern fantasy. Oh, yeah. You do a lot of anime and. and yeah, anime light novels. I've recently got a lot into Eastern fantasy, like cultivation, sex, and all that. Okay. Was that sect SEC? SEC? I think. Yeah, okay. All right. Just had to be clear. Um, <laughs> you, never, point, you never know with anime. No. <laughs> Fair. At this point, I read very little uh, fantasy. I read a lot of science fiction and horror. Um, I need to be engaged in cerebrally, or I need my heart to try to burst out of its chest. So, um, Kyle, what's your take on D&D history of novels? Like, are you curious of getting back into it and reading shit? Or would you rather just move forward with the with the campaign settings and dig into the gameplay side? I mean, it's really daunting to look at a huge list of novels and go like 
and you have to ask yourself a lot of the time they're like interconnected too, right? Yep. So you have to ask yourself like, where do I want to pick this up? And am I really willing to do that? Right. I mean, I've tried some of them, right. Uh, but it's just, it feels like too big of a universe to jump in midway. I do really like reading Warhammer novels, even though I've never played Warhammer, but it hits a lot of the things that I look for in fantasy. Now, this is the erotic Warhammer novels that you're reading, I'm assuming? I Well, I mean... 30% of what he reads. (laughs) When you look at Warhammer, I mean, there is a bit of eroticism to it, right? When one of the chaos gods is the god of pleasure. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Yeah, it's daunting, right? Like, that's the thing about Dragonlance 2, right? I picked up one because I got a recommendation from somebody, and I tried it, didn't work. And I'm just not willing to devote myself to the other, to trying to sift out the good ones out of the other 190 of them. I agree. Like, it's, this is why I, I have trouble. I got about halfway through Doctor Who. I finished off the 11th Doctor, got halfway through the 12th, and we're coming up on 14 now. And I'm like, I don't have fucking hours in the day for this shit, man. Like, I liked it, but there's a lot of shit in and among the the peaks like the valleys are deep but the peaks are high and i'm not sure i'm willing to go through that it's why i can't recommend star trek to people there's a lot of shit out there the hundreds of episodes so good and i love it so much i just can't recommend it man it's 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 fucking daunting if you don't get yeah. into it when you were a kid you're never going to get into it right james are do you have a opinion about the history of D novels are you curious about that shit similar to kyle i could honestly care less about the D expanded lore and similar to him the warhammer 40k like i don't play it i used to play when i was younger the cost was too expensive to play the tabletop but the <laughs> lore of it it's just phenomenal i love warhammer 40k lore it's just so deep so intricate and just so dark and bleak for the future and it feels right on par for like humanity. Yeah. I read a couple of the Warhammer, like original Warhammer, like the fantasy Warhammer yeah, high fantasy. novels. Yeah. And I, I got to tell you, I love books from a villain's perspective. Yeah. Right. Like there's one series called Malice Darkblade. And like it's, it's probably in the tie for my third favorite like series of books, just because it like, I, I don't like prophecy never been a big fan of it in terms of a literary device and it like it uses prophecy in a way i really liked like it was just i i'm going to need to hear you rant about that at a future date because i've got a lot of thoughts about prophecies and shit and like i would love to hear that but um for me the my take on D novels is man i know that there's some good ones out there I've, I've had a couple of recommendations i have one sitting on my shelf right now that i'm side-eyeing for potentially a legend lore episode, if I could ever could convince anybody else to read it with me. Um, (laughs) But like, again, that's a big fucking ask, right? Like I can't assume that D and D novels are good. I can only assume that they scratch the itch for D and D fans. Right. Um, So, or a specific kind of flavor of fan. I've never heard just an average reader out there in the world say yeah i just happened to stumble upon this dungeons and dragons like nobody reads a star trek book unless they're a star trek nerd no one reads a star wars book unless they're a star wars nerd right yeah so um kyle do you find it hard to follow a fandom when it jumps media platforms does it turn you off when that happens like going from books to movies kind of thing 
Well, I was thinking more along the lines of if you are sitting there following a story and you finish a trilogy and then the sequel of it happens to be in a video game and then after that there's a short-lived you know television show that's based on the children of the kids in the video game and like are you does that shit turn you off or would you rather stay in one media uh i would rather stay in one media i'm not necessarily opposed to it but you are more likely to lose me by jumping medias james what about you uh for the most part i'm against it unless each individual story so from the movie to the book to the video game can be its own encapsulated story without having knowledge of the others yeah so if you yes. know the others awesome you know an expanded world but if you don't oh well that kind of thing mm-hmm. yeah i yeah that's I, a good point i have trouble I, i'm not interested in your remake in a in a different medium a lot of the times like look again i'm a comic book nerd as well i don't really i've seen every marvel movie and and most of the shows and i have seen every dc movie and most of the shows i'm currently working through harley quinn which is actually a weird little guilty pleasure the the i like it yeah it's it's fucking good but um but there's a lot of shit that just should not have been made for movies or television i won't watch the the cw nonsense for the fucking legends of tomorrow and flash and arrow and supergirl and like people love it and they swear by it Um, that's that's not how i consume that style or that that genre so it it really matters to me kind of how i'm consuming it as well as what the story is um are you you guys a part of any fandom that seems to have died off in popularity uh not that i'm aware of i'm not really involved in any sort of like fandom okay i guess my point is have you ever been excited about uh uh intellectual property and you're like yeah i got to this super late and now nobody i know it has read this there's no one for me to talk to there's no online community there's no there's I've no for me to be black a sheep amongst my friends from media i consume anyways so i would never notice if i'm early late sideways to the matter is that just because of all the anime james no half my friends are anime nerds so like that's the one thing we have in common if anything i'm running behind on them knowingly on what's come out yeah, yeah, I gotta say this. I guess the Malazan Book of the Fallen thing. I don't know anybody else who's read it, and I would like to have a discussion with somebody, but I, nah. yeah. So I'm just trying to encourage people to read it, but it is big. Like each of the books is over a thousand pages, and there's 10 just in the original series. You should buy a bunch of the first book and just give it out to your friends. The, oh man, I have done that before. That's how that's how you got Dave into the Dresden Files, isn't it? Yep. That's like the only way you'll get me to read a book or a show you recommend. Like, if you want me to watch a show, send me a link to the show. I'll probably watch it. You tell me to watch it, I'll never watch it. You hand me the physical copy of the book or a PDF to it I can listen to, I'll probably consume it. Otherwise, I'm not going out of my way to get it. I'm sorry. Get guilted into it that way. Yeah, like it's in my hands. I have to do it. So I've started doing a thing where I'm collecting all the Stephen King books that's ever been published. And I want them all in hardcover because I just think it looks prettier on my shelf, which means I get to go into used bookstores all the time and go check out thrift stores and see what's sitting over there. And every once in a while, I get a, a really cool find and I get excited about it. Or someone gets me a hardcover book for for like Christmas or my birthday or something. And it feels really good. But I own them all in softcover. So whenever I get the hardcover, I take the softcover and I go, which one of my friends is going to love this? And so I start gifting Stephen King books out to people. 
And that is how I get people to read is I literally have to buy them versions of shit. Like it is, it is the only way if you say, Hey, you should check this book out. Nobody ever will. Yeah. That's a good point. That's how I got Dave to read a bunch of my books. There's, I just gave him a bag full of them. Right. Like I think I gave him flowers for Algernon, which is one of my favorite books. Yes. Uh, I ha- and- I handed that book out to Terry and he, he read, um, he read the, up to the last, like, six pages of it and said i can't finish this book i can't do it it hurts my heart so <laughs> yeah so then he then he finished it and uh and he said you're never allowed to to give me a book again i am traumatized so then i gave it to dan and dan read it in one sitting and went this, this hurts me where where i eat my food i think is how yeah. he put it and then he like <laughs> has never mentioned it again and then i, I bought it for mieka and uh, she's been side-eyeing it because she's she's a lit major and she worked in a public school, but she knows the reputation of it. So she's like, I'm not I'm not getting into it. And then I gave it to Dave and he's got, he got to the last 20 pages and that was six months ago and sitting on a shelf with a bookmark in it. He's like, I'm not going to finish it. Fuck you. I know what happens. I'm not going to fucking do this. Absolutely yeah. not. So I, I love Flowers for Algernon, but it is not. It is not something that people can uh, can swallow. over. hey, James, are you looking for a for a book recommendation? No, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those books. I like. I don't think I'll ever read it again, but it will always have a place in my heart. Same for uh, Johnny Got His Gun. Yeah, that was probably the like one of the hardest books I have ever had to read, and I'll never touch it again. But it was beautiful in its depth. You know, I feel that way about watching uh, Requiem for a Dream. I've seen it now once and I said I would never watch it again. Then I watched it again to introduce someone else to it. And I just, I can't, it hurts me where I fucking live. Yeah. Then I, there, there are just some shows like that. Like, yeah. which is also why I like to introduce people to the green mile without warning them. That's rude. <laughs> um, the anyway, only way you're going to get them to do it. <laughs> let's get that. Let's get back to dragon Lance for a minute. Let me jump into the lore for a bit. Okay. I want to focus primarily on what we know for fifth edition. Because, like I say, 190 some odd books, plus video games and TV shows and other shit. Like, there's there's an, a ridiculous amount of information. The lore goes really, really, really deep. And there is a wiki and a number of, of YouTube videos, like entire YouTube channels devoted to Dragonlance lore. And if it interests people, definitely look into it. I started to go down the YouTube rabbit hole and, and the Dragonlance wiki rabbit hole to learn more. And it just keeps going and going and going. And I really, really liked it um, from just like that, you know, 2 a.m. going down the rabbit hole perspective. Like I mm. would, yeah, I would read these books if they were written well and I knew which books they, this stuff was in and I could, you know, streamline it and figure it out. Like if someone were to go back and and redo the whole series, but streamline it into eight seasons of a show, yeah, I'd probably watch the fuck out of that. Especially with HBO, right? Like maybe not eight seasons. They should stop before the eighth, as we've learned. But um, but when it comes to actual Dragonlance lore, for the purposes of our conversation, let's talk for a second about fifth edition and our own homebrew games. Um, or how we would use the bits and pieces in it, because I could, we could do a multi, I almost did a, a touring the multiverse type show for like 15 episodes on Dragonlance, but I'm like, I'm not going to put any hosts through that fucking nonsense. Um, <laughs> I, this, like guys, we have, the, we have rescheduled this episode five or six times, and every time it has been because I don't know where to start and end with the lore. There's so fucking much of it. 
So I finally yeah. just said, hey, you know what? Let's look at what the Shadow of the Dragon Queen, the actual book, has given us. And let's look at the important lore um, and uh, information that we're going to need, what we can take out of this setting or what we need to know to, to play in it at you know a very basic level. Um, so we're going to skip a lot of the main characters. We're going to skip a lot of the... Well, I'm not going to get into the Pantheon. As a matter of fact, I think I am, I'm only going to name drop a single god which is absolutely fucking incredible. Um, it's important to note, actually, here, I'm going to name drop another one. It's important to note that Fizban of Fizban's Treasury of Dragons is also, like, it's just the human avatar of the platinum dragon known as um, Paladine in Dragonlance, who is also potentially the mirror image, the flip side, or the same person, depending on how you're looking at it, it's a little muddy right now, uh, as Bahamut in the Forgotten Realms pantheon. So there's a lot of, of lore about the pantheon I'm not getting into. There are different ages as well um, for the lore. Like, you know how Middle Earth is Middle Earth in the, in the what is the third age of men? It's it's got a bunch yeah. of that shit in it as well in Dragonlance. Like there's there's a deep timeline. You can assume that there are multiple novels and trilogies and shit written inside different ages and and parts of the history. So let me jump into it. We're gonna focus on the cliff note format um, for fifth edition. Otherwise, we'd be here for fucking days. This first of all is a medieval post-apocalyptic world. The gods were real and they've abandoned everybody. There are many different races and magical beasts that roam the land in largely classic fantasy tropes, but the world is just still now getting over an incredible devastation that happened. So Dragonlance didn't necessarily make any of the tropes, but it has used them in interesting and unique ways, solidifying their place in the fantasy landscape. They're part of why we think about dwarves the way we do, or goblins the way they do, the way we do. Knights on horseback, beautiful maidens that need to be rescued, and shit like that. When we think about dragons breathing fire, when we think about dragon gods, Dragonlance is part of that conversation, whether we know it or not. It has influenced a number of different intellectual properties uh, over the years, and so that's why it might feel, especially in those early, early books, super derivative, um, because um, it was one of the firsts. I mean, clearly Lord of the Rings is the grandfather of most fantasy, but but Dragonlance is a part of that conversation, especially for a lot of D&D nerds. So this apocalypse that happened was called the Cataclysm. And the Cataclysm, when it comes to the history, it's broken up essentially into three um, parts that are important. There's before the Cataclysm, the Cataclysm itself, and then after the Cataclysm. Um, just for a bit of a timeline on this, before the Cataclysm, is goes back as far as anybody can remember and beyond into myth and legend. The cataclysm was very abrupt and la and happened very very quickly. And then after the cataclysm has been like 350 years. So we're we still have elves that remember it. We still have some longer lived people that that remember or at least you know it happened to my great grandfather. Like it's it's still fresh enough uh, to the point where like people now kind of have an understanding of how World War One was because it happened to our great grandfathers, if if not our grandfathers, like in a, depending on how your family tree lines up. But it's starting to fade from the, the social um, zeitgeist, right? So mm -hmm. let's talk about before the cataclysm first. So 
there are different ages and I'm look, there's a bunch of information on each of these. We're going to go really bullet point on this. The first one is called the age of Starbirth. It's mostly lost to myth and legend about the origins of the world. It's, it's the beginning of the world, um, Kryn, and it's about, you know, the, the progenitor gods and, and uh, the different pantheons and the great heroes that rose up. Think about um, if, you know, the way that people talk about uh, Hercules, right, and the Greek gods, except these gods actually exist in Dragonlance. So then there's the Age of Dreams, which is when history truly begins, and some of the bigger and more important organizations, settlements, bloodlines, and philosophies take root. Uh, there are a lot of conflicting stories and myths from this time period, and I feel like there were a lot of novels set in the Age of Dreams. There are a number of wars that take place in this time period, and um, a lot of the conflicting stories, I think, is just because there were so many fucking novels being released at once. Then there was the Third Dragon War, which saw Tachesis, and I'm going to talk about Tachesis in half a second here, um, and her chromatic dragons get banished from Kryn. Tachesis, the same way that, that Fizban and, and Paladine are Bahamut, Tachesis is Tiamat. But like it's like super ramped up Tiamat. Uh, Tiamat in D&D is a gargantuan creature that is just like a really, really big, like ancient great worm with five heads that has godlike powers. Tachesis could step on a city. When you see the art in the actual fifth edition book, uh, Tachesis looms over and blots out the sun above an entire city itself. So like with towers and shit, Tachesis is fucking huge. Apparently the metallic dragons shortly uh, thereafter left Crane as well. But some of the gods are still mucking about in the background at this point. So all of the dragons left. More on that in a second. And so began the Age of Might, when human civilizations rose and flourished and took hold of the land. Again, standard stereotypical fantasy trope nonsense, right? Um, the gods have taken a step back. The dragons have faded in memory and humans are rising now. Um, however, they did it a little bit differently because humans created this, they took a town called uh, Istar and it spread over the entire continent um, of Ancelon and they became very powerful and they did it with a series of uh, what are called um, king priests. And this is much like pharaohs, right? However, this created the perfect recipe for corruption and evil in the name of good. So the idea here is that they would create more laws and restrict more people in more of a police state kind of feel uh, as time went on. When humans got too powerful, they started to abuse it and corruption happened, but it was always in the name of good. To give you an idea of how bad this is, this is what launches and sets off the cataclysm because the last king priest uh, in history attempted to achieve godhood and rule all of Kryn because he was the best one in his eyes for the job. Um, this only took place after a millennia of uh, of humans ruling. So, yeah, humans suck. Then the cataclysm hit. So some of the gods showed up and smacked the mortals back into their place with an apocalypse. Um, the cataclysm had uh, 13 warnings, and it's your standard plague shit, like trees wept with blood, fires raged in unnatural ways, Blah, 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 plagues, right? But the king priest didn't care, and so all of Crane was punished, you know, as gods punish all mortals for one fucking up. The continent of Ancelon was flooded with a new ocean known as the Blood Sea, cutting off eastern Ancelon from the rest of the continent. 
So imagine a new ocean suddenly appearing in the middle of North America or Europe or Asia, and you will understand the consequences and resulting destruction as coastlines shift, port cities are suddenly nowhere near the oceans, other cities are completely underground, or underwater rather, and then on top of it all, when the cataclysm hit, the god priest, uh, I believe it was a god priest, summoned a mountain on fire and dropped it on the continent as well. So like, massive apocalypse happens here. You know what happened when the gods finished punishing the mortals? They just fucking left. All 21 of them. They just said, nope. Sorry, bitches. Now now that we have spanked you, it's time to leave. Sit here and think. Well, That'll listen. teach them. <laughs> right? Um, and standard god practice, though. Oh, absolutely. And this is what I mean. Like, these are not unfamiliar tropes, but they're done in interesting ways. When you kind of get the the... When you step back and see the whole overview and you get the whole story at a glance, it is done differently. And I believe that the novels get into the, like, minutia, into the details of of who was there when this shit happened and why. All 21 of these gods fucked off. So now it's been over 300 years since that happened, and uh, we're calling that period of time the time of darkness. So there was a cataclysm, and then after the cataclysm is the time of darkness. Due to all the chaos and suffering, everybody's lives were uprooted... So let me get into a couple specifics here. There's the Knights of Salamnia, and you're going to hear that name a lot. And they were the bright and gleaming hope of humanity that was involved in Istar, who, which was this, this city that grew to become like a continent for the humans. They sided with Istar, and um, they were these big beacons of virtue and hope. But their big thing is all about loyalty, and they had sided with the king priests because they were supposed to be doing good things. And then the last one tried to do his god shit, and despite their best attempts to be good guys, they couldn't stop them because their allegiances were pulled and do we break our oaths of loyalty. So now, no one really trusts them because they were allied with a psychopath when Armageddon showed up, right? So they chose their oaths over the good of the people. Um, there are still elves and dwarves, but they've become reclusive, standard fantasy shit. Disease and famine run rampant, and hobgoblins and ogres are becoming a bigger and more consistent threat. There are not a whole lot of monsters like gnolls and, and manticores and shit. Some of that stuff is kind of in the background, but it's like, you know, in, in Greek mythology, like the harpies are on that island and, and Medusa is over there and it's very specific. Um, yeah. They're not just like societies of monsters or roaming bands of giants and shit. That's kind of how Dragonlance is as well. So people now, it's, the time of darkness is coming to an end and people are trying to rebuild and connect. The civilized world is starting to slowly recover. And despite the fact that the gods have abandoned their worshippers and now cults and zealots are desperate to fill the power vacuum where the gods used to be, there's actually some stability and people are starting to hope again. So. Where does that leave us? We are just out of the time of darkness and most things look good, but the world is fraught with danger still beyond the borders of civilization and those borders are still shaky at best. But every adventure needs a conflict, right? So, I mean, we've got this, the campaign setting for Dragonlance is not a campaign setting book the way that Ravenloft and Ravnica and Eberron were. Um, it's more of an adventure path. By the way, here's a little bit of information you need to know at the beginning. Um, which sucks. I wish we got a full campaign setting book because a lot of this shit is pretty cool. So the bad guy in Shadow the Dragon Queen is, surprise, surprise, the Dragon Queen. Uh, Takesis is back again. 
Um, she has five armies, each based on a color of dragons, of course. But her minions have done something really fucked up. So here's a cool piece of lore. Before the metallic dragons had left, the chromatics stole a fuck ton of the metallic dragon eggs, and they kind of held them hostage. And the chromatics have promised to keep their hostages safe as long as, as long as the metallics fuck off and stay out of the next dragon war. So the metallics agreed. But as soon as they left, the chromatics started to fuck with the eggs. So now they have used magic to warp the metallic eggs and hatch them, creating a race of draconic humanoids that are beefier and scarier than half-dragons and are evil zealots who work for Tachesis, the Dragon Queen. They're called Draconians. The Metallics don't know this, so Tachesis is making a play, and this is what the adventure's about. She's making a play right now to take over Kryn as quickly as possible before the Metallic Dragons figure out that their deal is off and that all of their eggs have been twisted and all of their young have actually been in danger the whole time and will come rushing back to fight Tachesis. So, that's the deal. Two years ago, the dragon army started to take over, and now the specifically the red dragon army is directly attacking the area where the campaign takes place. So let's grab dice because I got more questions before we move on to the next bit. Ten. 14. Did you say 10, James? I did. I got a 13. I'm rolling well, but it doesn't seem to matter too much. Um, Kyle, again, what inspires you the most about all of this shit that I just went off about? I don't know. Probably the cataclysm. I'm a big fan of apocalypses. Right, either starting them or stopping them. Also, I think the Blood Sea is just a great name, and I would want to work that in somewhere. Right. Um, I really, really like the idea of um, the idea that one mortal decided, "Hey, you know what? I'm going to become a god," and the rest, like twenty-one other gods, like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! Fuck, no, (laughs) you don't. No, you and everyone else that looks like you is going to get a smackdown they won't quickly recover from. And then we're going the fuck over here if you're going to try this shit again. Yeah, like, we're going to make an example of you. Yeah. Like, I love it when gods smack mortals in the face in any sort of lore. I think it's pretty fun. I like it when mortals smack back as well. Like, I really like the Clash of the Titans story. Um, but it's um, it's particularly funny that it's like the gods panicked beat down the entire continent like the world and then fucked off and ran away like <laughs> like bullies in a schoolyard right i i don't know there's something there that makes me makes me laugh and want to dick about without a bit james is there something in that lore that stands out to you as something you'd be interested in playing in or with um i like the idea as you were saying with the um the way the gods smack down the mortal but i would play it a little differently he succeeded he became a god but he wasn't allowed to be a god of Kren. And that was the cost of getting him off world was the destruction of the world. So he became a god. That's why there's no more gods left. It took them all getting him off world to bind him to a different world, throw him to a different job, whatever. But that was the cost in the world. But they didn't leave. They're just escorting him to Eberron. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, Kyle, would you rather be a DM or a player in a Dragonlance campaign? I think a player. I'd rather hear somebody else's story than try to make one within the existing universe. Fair. Um, I want to uh, DM just so that I can play one of the armies by myself. You guys can all play <laughs> the, the other army, but I, this is me and I'm playing the evil army. I never get to play true evil as a DM, and this get this lets me just, just cackling as an evil dragon queen. Whirling your mustache? Pretty much. 
Yeah. James, would you rather DM or play in a Dragonlance campaign? I'd rather DM if I got to partic- pick the particular players I was playing with. If it was just for a general campaign, I'd rather play. Fair enough. Yeah, I'd want someone to take it seriously because, there's, look, there's comedy and shit in novels. Uh, there has to be, right? There's a lot of, mm. like, young adult fiction that's involved in here. And, like, there's going to be comedic moments. However this really does feel like it's a serious apocalyptic war campaign set. I'd want to play with a morally good aligned party too. Yeah. I wouldn't want someone like me in this type of campaign where you're already fighting against evil. I, as a player and for most of my player characters wouldn't mind using evil to achieve a good goal. Whereas this campaign is very much, you are fighting evil. I feel like if you were playing in the time period of the king priests that were like laying down some pretty fucked up laws all in the name of law and good and order, you would have a character that could fit in there, James. 100%. Um, Is there a good plot hook in any of this that feels like Dragonlance specific? Like any of the conflicts that stand out that you're like, I've never seen that anywhere else or I I would want to dig into that a little bit more? Uh, I mean, the Draconians aspect, see, I haven't seen that anywhere else. Um, so I mean that probably feels the most dragon lance e. Uh. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I'm I, I like that there's uh I just dropped it really briefly and I didn't have the opportunity to get into it, but there was the third dragon war, which is when Takesis got banished, right? So but like that means that there were two other dragon wars and we're about to kick off like a fourth one right now. And mm-hmm. they're you don't get a whole lot of like sequel wars in a lot of fantasy stuff. Yeah. So I, well, I mean, that... Lord of the Rings, right. is kind of a sequel war when Sauron, uh, Sauron comes back. Yeah. And like, but that's rare. I don't get like, again, that's like the, the evil forces are mustering over there. Like Dragonlance is no, the armies are marching. Half of the, of the enemies we get in the bestiary in um, shadow of the dragon queen, half of them are fucking part of the army. Like it's, it's a straight up war narrative. And so that's that's unique in D&D, at least in 5th edition for me anyway. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, D&D generally doesn't lend itself to big set battles. And I I think that whatever the cards were that they were trying in 1996, whatever this board game is that they're doing now, these are the attempts to represent that because Dragonlance is a war setting, right? Yeah. James, do you have any other thoughts on this? For me, I'd also do the Dragonoids, but I would make it a moral question for the players. About halfway through the campaign, once they're kind of set in who they are as characters, set in their ways of fighting the evil of the Red Dragon army, give them a chance to wipe out all the Dragonoids at once. Bring that moral dilemma onto the players that at this moment, you can cast this one spell through this one scroll that the Comratic Dragons won't know it was you. So they'll still attack the red dragons, but you now have the choice. Are you wiping out a species? Are you killing every single one of them essentially in cold blood? Because they've done nothing to you personally yet. Yes, it will make your war so much easier, but can you do it? That's why I need to play with a good aligned party. A party that would be a really hard question. Because a player like me and half the people I play with, we would gladly pull that trigger. And there are a number of... of like artifacts in Dragonlance, like I've kind of skimmed over this a bit, like this one weapon, this one magic item, this one thing that will do this big, horrible fucking 
like apocalyptic move. Like there are, they don't have nukes, but they've got, look, Dragonlance is named after the Dragon Lances. These are lances specifically meant to kill dragons and they are magically infused to be able to do it. Um, and that's, that's fun that they've got that kind of shit. And I, I really do. I have done that to my players. I have put the big red button in their hands and said, well, what do you want to do? The last time that I did it in a one shot that they knew, they knew the outcome as players, but the characters didn't, they honored what the characters wanted and they saved their own asses and doomed four different species to extinction with blood plagues, just at a drop of a hat. Um, and that like had huge ramifications inside, like in my own world. And they were fucking horrified. One of the, cause I have a list of all of the playable races. And every time that, that one of these instances comes up, one of the playable races gets crossed out essentially. Right. They cough up blood yeah. and every single one of them starts spewing blood and fall over dead. Uh, but one of the ones they draw, they uh, ended up rolling for randomly uh, was they ended up selecting plasmoids. And uh, so the plasmoids, they don't have blood. There's just plasma. So they all, every plasmoid in existence just became a giant bubble of blood that was barely still holding on. And every once in a while, like if it moved, somebody moved it or poked it, it would pop and just rain blood down. And the question that they have right now, because there's one plasmoid left that hasn't been popped, it's in a hospital um and they're like is it still sentient is it in pain it's just blood now right but like what were plasmoids originally were they just blood is plasma right and so like it's fucking it's fucking with my players i love the big red button so james i also know that you would push it over and over and over and over and over and over again just to see what would happen too many times to collect (laughs) the satisfying clicking sound stops and if it's a good tactile switch, that's a few hundred thousand clicks. Yeah. <laughs> um, would you guys want to play during some of the previous eras of Dragonlance, or is the modern adventure good enough for you as a plot hook? Uh, I do not have an opinion either way, I think. Okay. I, I like this plot hook. I want to play in this plot hook. I flipped through the book. I like the book. This might be one of the times that I would I would want to play one of the modules. I have a lot of contempt for most of the adventure paths, not necessarily for this one. It seems real dark and real apocalyptic. Yeah, I'm fine playing the module unless I'm playing with a DM that has read all 190 books. Like, unless you're an expert on the deep lore, I don't want you to go do fair. shit in the past. Yeah, fair. Yeah, I don't want someone who knows half of it and is making it up to fit the narrative is going to fuck it up and then have conflicting answers later and all that shit. So yeah, I, that's a good point. Yeah, I think it would entirely depend on who's going to be the DM for it. Yeah, that's fair. Um, okay, here's here's one. Not including the three of us that are on the this episode. Is there anybody else on the podcast that you would say, "Hey, I want them to DM me in a Dragonlance campaign"? I bet Jeff or Dan could do it pretty well. Yeah, I think Dan could do it pretty well. I think that I know Terry's had a lot of success with Horde of the Dragon Queen and he's in Rise of Tiamat right now. And I also know that Terry was a literal soldier. I feel like he would bring some really cool, unique shit. He's all about dragons and he's done dragon campaigns and he's all about war. And I bet that he would be pretty fucking. Cool. I know. I have a feeling with Dragonlance, it would turn into a DM verse player with Terry. I feel like Terry would get somewhere in his head to fighting the players. Yeah, I don't know he, why I just feel like something about Dragonlance would do it to him. I, I also feel like you're you're right. Back to your point earlier, James. It depends on the players too, right? Yeah. Like, um, Terry Terry would be absolutely great DMing 
Jeff and Dan that know the setting and take it seriously. And I, you know, I want to be a Knight of Salamnia. I've got this oath and I'm going to stick with it. Um, as opposed to you and me, you're going to be like, ah, do we need oaths? We can, I'm just going to stab the guy. Yeah. Right? Or I'll make a really vague oath that kind of lets me do what I want. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's get into uh, who's actually in the world of Kryn. So when it comes to the peoples and creatures of Kryn, you have mountain and hill dwarves, two flavors of high elves, wood elves and sea elves, gnomes, and a bunch of different humans from different kingdoms and lands. And then you have the goddamn Kender, which are just the most annoying halfling an annoying halfling can possibly fucking be. They are built to be rogues and thieves and bards. So that's that's it. Those are, And then you have draconians. So there's no dragonborn. There's no tiefling. There's no lizard folk. There's no orcs. But you can't talk about Dragonlance. Oh, look, it's, it's primarily human-centric, right? That tends to be... And I get the impression that most of the novels are like, the the adventuring party is three humans, the dwarf and the elf, right? Like yeah, the one I read, it was a kender, I think mostly human, a half elf, a full elf. I can't remember if there was a dwarf in it, but it was you're yeah, pretty it was standard. definitely human centric. Yeah. So um you can't talk about the humans in Dragonlance without mentioning the Knights of Salamia, um, which is obvious because I've already brought them up a couple times. But what you need to know more of is the fact that they were founded a thousand years ago by a king who actually met three gods. And they inspired, each one of these gods, uh, inspired three knightly orders within the Knights of Salamnia. So there's Knights of the Crown who are all about loyalty and obedience and are sworn to aid any other knight or any other kingdom that is on their list of loyalty and the list of loyalty is capitalized. It's essentially their official list of trusted people and their their BFFs. Then there's Knights of the Sword, who are all about courage, honor, and, and a just war. They defend the defenseless, willingly sacrificing themselves for the greater good without complaint. They tend to be on the lookout for heroic quests, and they want to prove themselves to be worthy. And then there are Knights of the Rose, and they're all about wisdom and justice. They usually start in one of the other orders and graduate into this one if they are the absolute pinnacle of goodness. So there's the crown, which is about loyalty and obedience. And you can understand now why, why they have a bad reputation with people after the cataclysm, because they were obedient and loyal to the wrong fucking side, someone who's corrupt. Um, the Knights of the Sword were all about you know, having a just war and doing things with courage and honor and not necessarily doing the right thing, but doing the the honorable thing. And then Knights of the Rose, who are very rare and rise to the top. They're the cream of the crop of the other two. Um, there's more to know about the Knights of Salamnia, but it's mostly just like specific rules about their chivalry or the history of the most noteworthy members. Um, but what you need to know is that they're a tarnished and shamed group of knights uh, who hide away and squabble over whether or not their oaths and sworn duties are more important than the world and its peoples, who have outgrown the necessity for archaic knights in the first place. So that was an interesting take on knighthood that I really liked, uh, especially because some of the knights have abandoned their brethren and their orders um, in order to disguise themselves and go out into the world and continue their divine missions of being good people and being loyal to the people and obedient to the public's needs, but they can't out themselves as knights. Yeah. Okay, so knights are all well and good, but let's talk about magic for a moment, the other side, because that covers the marshals. And first off, 
Clerics and divine magic are incredibly rare. The gods fucking laughed after all. So that leaves three orders of mages. The order of the white robes, which is altruistic. The order of the black robes, which focuses on self-betterment. And the order of the red robes, which is all about balance. And I got a total sidebar here, James, you'll like this. Some people believe that this actually inspired the building blocks of early Final Fantasy games, when the spellcasters were the white mage who healed, the black mage who dealt increased damage, and the red mage who did a little of both and focused on buffing and support. It's the same kind of breakdown, and I really like that. It's actually pretty cool. When it comes to the mages, you can find them in the only remaining functional, what's called Tower of High Sorcery. There used to be five, but three were Towers of High Sorcery that were destroyed during the Cataclysm, and one is now cursed and stands empty. There were a bunch of details. I almost went down that road, but it looked real long and real dense and was probably the plot of like a trilogy or something. So I'm sure that information exists out there about why it is cursed. If you know, leave it in the comments. I would actually like to know the Cliff Notes version of this. If you want to become a mage in one of the orders, you have to pass a series of difficult and taxing tests. Sometimes a mage will fail or go rogue and abandon the mages of high sorcery. And when that happens, you are forbidden from practicing magic and the mages might actually hunt you down if you're reported as using magic. So they like police themselves. There are backgrounds in the book um, for Knights of Salamnia and mages of high sorcery. And there are also feats that support each specific order if you wanted to commit to that. And the book recommends that you do. It's Dragonlance. So like if you're going to play, you might as well fucking embrace the campaign setting. And I would absolutely be a Knight of Salamnia, one of the orders, or one of the orders of mages, because that's just fucking interesting to me, right? Um, mm -hmm. You'll notice that these are all real, really based around humans, though. I don't think you're going to have gnome Knights of Salamnia. I don't know that for certain. But every instance I saw of either of these um, sides of society, it was always humans that were listed. So that's all the, the Dragonlance Shadow of the Dragon Queen has to offer about lore and history. Uh, during the campaign, you and your party help fight against red dragons. You explore a hex grid map of a pretty cool and interesting part of the continent called the Northern Wastes, which is full of little adventures that I'm going to steal from my own homebrew. Um, and you even defend a castle against a siege and encounter a flying fortress. The name of the game here is War, unlike any other adventure in 5th edition. Uh, and in between parts of the game, you are encouraged to take a break and play Warriors of Kryn, where you can get involved in other battles and affect the course of history before returning to D&D. You're essentially doing all of the battles that are happening in the background of the story, and while you may or may not um, impact who wins or who loses, you'll impact the conditions that, that people are winning and losing. That's a pretty cool little tie-in. Yeah, and it's not necessary either, right? Um, yeah. It's just, I I would want to play, I would, would want to do the whole thing just to get the whole feel of it. As yeah, for villains and it... monsters, you have a few interesting ones, but it's fewer than 20 pages in this campaign, so it's not great. Um, the spotlights go to five different types of draconians, a few kinds of dragon army troops, and dragonelles, which are smaller, more bestial dragons that are the size of horses and decked out with barding and saddles. You're supposed to ride them and fly into battle. Now, there's some named big bad guys and like real big set piece um, evils here. And this is where a lot of the interesting details show up in the book, but there's not a whole lot of it. So I kind of listed out a handful with a big focus spotlight on one of them. Um, so 
I'm going to get into it. The first one is Death Dragons. And I didn't know what to expect from this. Um, I really like them, but they seem to be Dragonlance focused. So these are skeletal dragons or skeletal dragons, as as we learned about recently in the Undead series. Um, that uh, <laughs> don't like from... that. No, you didn't like that. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, these are dragons that rise from the dead, burning forever with flames of the cataclysm that killed them. So, like they are the cataclysm flames are purple, and uh, these are black, like dragon skeletons wreathed in purple flames that are coming off of their bones and wings. That's pretty badass. There are two kinds, and I thought that they would be based on like the age, the way that all other dragons are in fifth edition or in most of D and D anyway. But they're not. There's greater ones and lesser ones, and the difference being that the greater ones retain their personality and some of the abilities they had during life. And the lesser ones are just shadows of their former selves. So you can have a greater wormling and a lesser ancient, right? The idea here, though, is that they're all pretty big and powerful. And the greater ones have are a CR 14 and the lesser ones are a CR 10. One of the it, NPCs it, that's worth pointing out. Sorry, Kyle. What? Sorry. Uh, does it specify why one of them would retain certain abilities or memories of before the cataclysm or not i didn't find it in the in the blurb but i did just do a quick skim because i know that that's going to be covered in a future episode that does a deep dive into the the death dragons and i didn't want to get into it too much um i will say that there's obviously an answer for it but that answer is probably fleshed out in the novels i'm sure you can find that info online Um, reading fucking reading or as james likes to do having the the text of speech you don't need your eyeballs to read anymore. It's 2023. <laughs> um, and then there is uh, one of the NPCs that I really like, the Consaldi Fire Eyes, she's called. She's one of Takesis's most fervent followers. To prove her faith, she once plucked out her left eye and put in a gem of seeing that glows red whenever she u- uses magic. I love that detail, but you know what? Her stat block doesn't include magic, so what the fuck? Uh, she is on a religious mission to invade the Kalaman region in the name of her dragon goddess. And she's a CR 11. So like pretty powerful, pretty nasty. Um, I'm going to totally bungle this name here. Uh, Lohazet, I-, I think is uh, how you pronounce it. He's a human from the Order of the Black Robes. He's weirdly obsessed with the past. Empires and ruin and extinct creatures are his passions. And he's teamed up with the Red Dragon Army in order to find a hidden city that's lost in the wastes. Spoiler alert, you are also looking for that at one point in the campaign as well. So at some point, you go directly toe-to-toe with this guy. His modus operandi is a particularly potent set of toxins and poisons, uh, and he does all sorts of really nasty, fucked-up things to you um, when you get infected by these. He is a CR-12, and I believe you run into him at a much lower level. Then there is Lord Soth. And Lord Soth, I'm actually going to... I'm going to leave Lord Soth to the end because he's my favorite fucking thing. Um, So after Lord Soth, or I guess before him, will be Red Ruin. Uh, Do you guys know about the Red Baron in World War I? Yeah, the uh, German fighter pilot. Yes, I know of him. Well, Red Ruin is like the Red Baron. um, But instead of being a man that terrorizes the skies above Europe, Red Ruin is an unknown woman who rides a red dragonel and terrorizes the skies above Kryn. She She almost never removes her helmet. Sorry? Did she also get shot down by a Canadian? Um, I, she hasn't been shot down by a Canadian yet. She's still running around, um, but she almost never takes her helmet off, and she rarely speaks. 
and nobody really knows what her fucking deal is. I'm sure that that's a major plot point in one of the books. Um, but as far as Fifth Ed goes, she's just mystery woman. Now, there is another woman named Worston Kern. And in life, she was Lord Soth's standard bearer. And she died with him. Now, she has risen with him and serves him loyally, wielding a pike that curses those she hits with it, and screaming the names of the damned souls that Soth has slain in battle. This invokes their final moments of terror, and it brutalizes the psyche of anyone who hears her do this scream. But let me get into Lord Soth himself. Soth used to be a knight of the Order of the Rose, which, if you'll remember, is the, like, cream of the crop for the Knights of Salamnia. And he was one of the best of them. When the gods gave him the ability to confront the king priest and stop the cataclysm, Soth turned his back on his mission and died in the fires that swept the countryside. He rose as a death knight, the most powerful death knight in all of Kryn, and arguably all of D&D as well, and has hidden in his cursed castle until now. Tachesis has summoned him to be a champion for her cause, and so he rides a death dragon into combat. That's what we get in 5th edition. This happens to be the best piece of lore that I know about Dragonlance is his backstory. And 5th edition does a piss poor job of, of representing it. Um, I know that this is going to be spoilerific for the campaign itself. You uncover a lot of this information in the campaign. So if you're going to play in it, spoiler warning, jump to the next part of the uh, of the show notes. You can check for time codes in the show notes below. So here we go. Here's the real story behind Lord Soth. He was a human man known as Lauren Soth, and he was a paragon of goodness and virtue. About a year after he was married to a beautiful human woman, he and his knights saved a bunch of elves from some ogres, and he immediately became infatuated with the beauty of one of his of the injured elven women that he saved. He took her back to his keep and back to his personal healer so she would get better, and one thing led to another. To make a long story short, his wife became pregnant with the help of magic, but Lord Soth was having a torrid affair with this elven woman on the side. Before his wife gave birth, the elven mistress also became pregnant, and Lord Soth was met with a horrible dilemma. But when he saw that his wife's son was born with deformities, he flew into a rage blaming her magic and ended up killing both her and the child, and then he covered it up and said they died in childbirth. He waited the customary six months and then married the elf with whom he had been having an affair. She gave birth and they were a happy family for a short time before a panel of knights put him on trial for the murder of his first wife and son and sentenced him to a public death. He was almost beheaded, but his loyal knights, because remember, the Knights of Salamnia are always about loyalty, they rescued him at the last moment and instead of a big bloody battle, the panel of knights just exiled him instead. Soth became horribly morose, and his new wife, who loved him dearly, was was pretty upset um, that he was suffering this depression. So she prayed to her favorite goddess, who in turn granted Soth another chance at peace. Ride to Istar and confront the king priest and stopped the impending cataclysm. We all know how this is going to turn out. To sweeten the deal, the goddess promised that even if Soth was killed, he would be resurrected until his quest was complete, and then he would have a peaceful, honorable rest. So, off he went. But for reasons I couldn't find, during his journey, he came across the same group of elves that he had saved before. And they met him briefly and told him that his second wife had cheated on him. I don't know why they told him this. I didn't read the novel and no sources I could find online talked about their motivations. 
but it was clear to the reader that they're lying. He became enraged, turned back from his quest so he could confront his wife, and therefore doomed all of Kryn. He confronted his wife with accusations based on these lies, but as she tried to calm him down, the cataclysm hit. The world erupted in flames so hot they melted stone, and the castle shook. A chandelier fell on his new bride and new son, and as she was trapped and burning alive, she held out her baby for Soth to save. But his, in his pride and anger, he refused. The baby burned to death in the arms of its mother, and with her last ounces of strength, Soth's second wife cursed the exiled knight, saying he will live one life for every life lost in the cataclysm. The gods heard this, and Soth and his loyal knights all burned to death in the horrible fires of the apocalypse, and then rose again as undead who will never find peace. Since then, he's been dragged into a few other wars and battles, but he mostly lives in self-imposed exile in his half-burned-down keep, dealing with his own depression and hatred of himself. So, grab your dice. I have questions. Oh, a 19 again. James? 16. I had a 6. All right. Kyle, uh, which villain intrigues you the most out of the ones that I was talking about? I mean, Lord Soth, hands right. down. He's just I, so good. I feel like they all have rich histories like this if you were to go digging through it. I mean, that's what that's the actual attractive part about Dragonlance is that like we're glancing off the top of it right now, but there's a fuck ton of information and it's all war and tragedy as far as the eye can see. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, it's mostly tragedy, right? But I like a little bit of mm, bringing the tragedy, someone bringing tragedy upon themselves. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. This is why we hang out with Dan. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> James, are there any of the uh, villains that intrigued you? The group of elves that fucked with Sloth. Right? Like, what the fuck are they doing? <laughs> well, you could easily add more to the story of why his first child was deformed. Is that same group of elves. They sent him back to make sure the prophecy didn't come true. Like You can blame a lot on those elves and there's a whole campaign right there. I have to wonder, like, I have to assume that there's a fucking reason for it. But, like, I'm so curious. How do you guys feel about the Death Dragons? Do you think that they're interesting or necessary? Are they fun? Or would you just leave them by the wayside? Uh, I don't know about necessary, but they are fun. Like, it's such a cool visual, you know? Like, a skeletal dragon, read the purple flames. Like, it's good. I really want to know what separates them uh, between like losing their memories and not because yeah. I think that would definitely play into it a lot but I like them yeah I agree they're interesting and cool and all I wouldn't get rid of them from a campaign but I also they're not a necessary part of the campaign but they're a cool addition yeah does Sorry, it you... uh no go ahead Kyle. uh the death dragons I'm assuming they would fight on the side of Tachesis or yeah 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 that that's the whole deal is like Soth rides one on on her behalf into battle in this this campaign. So I'm trying to see if I can find any information about why. And I there's like I went looking briefly before. I'm on like page three of Google before I can find it. If someone else's Google foo is better than mine, let us know. Um, everything seems to revolve around dragons in this campaign setting between the draconians and dragon army troops and dragon elves. So these are the small dragons you can ride and the death dragons. Which one of the creatures intrigues you the most as a D&D player? Like which one would you most want to run across? Uh, as a player, death dragon, probably. Yeah, death dragons. I mean, they're the only one that really stand out. 
uh, from the rest of the pack. I mean, Draconians, uh, like, I could see them being important in, like, big set battles. Like, we were talking about, like, as a war, you're fighting them all together. Maybe as, like, minions leading up to it. Uh, Dragon Elves or Mounts, obviously. But, I mean, in terms of actually running across it and having, like, a singular set piece be important, it would be the Death Dragons. See, for me, I'm all about the Dragon Elves because I see them as being, like, they're little fighter craft while we have the big bombers as the full dragons, right? So I know for me, it's as a player, what would I be interested in seeing more than once? Seeing the dragonoids, you're going to see packs of them, you're going to fight packs of them, you're going to be bored of them. Dragonelles, not to the same degree, but very similar. You'll fight three or four of them per major long session, two session encounter. But you'll see maybe two jet death dragons during the campaign and you maybe fight one of them. That seems more of a draw to me as a player than killing the same thing a dozen times. I just feel like, okay, A, I totally get that. But I just feel that players always want pets. There's always that one player that wants animals. And tell me that, mm-hmm. that you don't want to have a pet dragon elf. Because you can you can get those. There's, there's not just the red dragon army that has them. Dragon elves are just... All different colors all over the, the fucking world. So they're just that. a horse, so they're not that special to me as a player. But but they fly in the dragons, James. Yeah, and I can go get one. Cool, now I have a flying mount, but I have a flying yeah. mount, same with Joe down the street and Johnny up the street. Like, you're not special. If I'm the only one having the flying mount in the city, sure, I'm special. Sure, I enjoy it. Yeah, I can laugh at the rest of my party. But if we each have our own color dragon to fuck around with, it ain't that special anymore. We went to the Honda dealership and picked up the generic Civic. <laughs> I, I named my Dragon L Prius. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, Kyle, uh, how do you feel about the organizations, the Knights of Salamnia and the the High Sorcery? Oh, uh, they're they're pretty cool. I mean, I'm generally not a huge fan of the whole. Um, I am a knight and I fight for good. Uh, you know, I am here to protect the princess. But I do like how um, they talk about, you know, loyalty being a failing as well, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, at what point does is loyalty not a virtue anymore, right? And then it also kind of plays off what Lord Soth was doing, right? Because he wasn't exactly loyal to his wife. And then that essentially caused the cataclysm in another way. Uh, I Yeah. There's really something to be said there. Right? You could have a character arc built around that, right? Yeah, I think it's really cool. And I, I think it's uh, the black, red, and white mages. It's a different take on it, which I think is pretty cool. James, how do you feel? I feel like they'd be an absolute pain in the ass to deal with as a party. Every single one of them seems so far up their own ass that dealing with them would be like a driving nails through a chalkboard. I think it, it depends on the kind of, of campaign you're running, right? If everyone has to pick a different one of the orders uh, for the Knights of Salamnia, and they, there could be that little, like, the philosophical arguments of the party members as they're, you know, out trying to do good, but no one can know that they're secretly knights. Like, that could be really fun and interesting if your party wants to do that. But if only two players want to do that, and the other, like, three are sitting there twiddling the thumbs, uh, that's not going to be fun, right? Yeah. I think you're probably going to have to be 
Sorry. So, sorry. James, I think you hit the nail on the head. It depends on the fucking party in this campaign setting. A lot of campaign settings really depend on the party you're playing with for it to be fun. That's one of the reasons why I like Eberron and Ravnica so much, because that doesn't matter so much. There's a place for every kind of player in those settings, whereas Theros, it's very Greek-themed. Like you, you, you can't just put murder hobos in there. There's There are societal rules and shit and it's the same thing with this right yeah um so there are definitely some challenges uh i'm gonna just really quickly to wrap this episode up discuss the challenges that we're running into here is the idea of some some deep 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 lore that may or may not come to the surface that not every player is necessarily going to get or appreciate or that not every DM is going to honor appropriately. There's clearly some additional session zero level topics that need to be had here because we're dealing with war and a lot of trauma that comes with war and the concept of uh, refugees and abandoning cities and things as well. Uh, that's got to be a hot fucking topic, especially in like Europe recently. Like, where are these refugees going? That's politically loaded. You can't just drop that into a campaign. You, you might end up with the arguments at the table. Um, the size and, and concept of the scope of doing a war that is not just skirmishes on the side of the road or in, you know, the royal chambers or in a deep dungeon, like these are thousands of individuals marching to their deaths. And also you're really handcuffed to a specific location, right? There's not a whole lot of Feywild shit going on in Dragonlance. You're not going to be able to go to the elemental planes. You're not doing Ravenloft or jumping over to the Shadowfell for a handful of episodes. Like you're here in the war and you don't get to you don't get to walk away from it. Right. Um mm -hmm. and I know from my party in the last campaign that I ran, they were essentially at war for months. And they said at the end of it, that was a fucking grind. We need something a little bit a little bit later in the future. Um they loved it, but it was definitely, you need a comedy in between the tragedies sometimes, right? And so I don't feel like there's a whole lot of that in Dragonlance. Not the way that it's set up, especially not this campaign setting. Um, let's roll dice one final time. Well, five. Five. I also got a five. All right, Kyle, roll off. Oh, oh another 19. Well, between the two of us, we rolled a 20. So, um, <laughs> James, <laughs> you first. Uh, I listed a while back all the different races, um, the elves and, and dwarves, uh, gnomes, and kender and humans. Which one do you think you'd miss the most in a Dragonlance campaign? Not that I would personally miss it, but one that I feel is missing from the campaign are drow. Yeah. The world's gone to cataclysm. How are there not drow? Fair. It says right in the 5th um, edition book, and this is a cop-out because 5e is just doing this in all of their campaign settings and shit now, is is just because it's not listed here doesn't mean that you can't have them, but they're just going to be super, super rare. Don't fucking do that. Don't leave the door open a crack. Open yeah. it all the way or close it. Stop fucking around with these half measures. Kyle, do you have a race that you'd miss most in Dragonlance? Uh, I don't know. Maybe lizard folk, just because I like the lizard folk. In the same right. vein, the one that I thought was really, really obvious is we're missing fucking kobolds, guys. Like, yeah, we got all this dragon shit. There's no kobold servants and minions and your fuckery. And that's also how I add some comedy, right? I mean, that's it seems like the draconians are supposed to be kind of kobolds, just a little. No, no, they're like super dragonborn. They are big, yeah. like, and 
smart and like they they're metallic dragons but bipeds and evil right so yeah i guess it's um, not so, they're not supposed to exist though like they are oh they're abominations yeah 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 so i mean like there is no real cobalt because i guess the dragons are supposed to be these you know angelic kind of figures right larger than life yeah um james do you see any other challenges that i didn't mention that you think dms and players might face with this setting i know just world setting things kind of depends how your dm plays it too like eavesdropping in this type of setting would be very prevalent and you're trying to hide you especially you're trying to be knights you're trying to hide that identity that's something i would bring up with a dm on session session zero so if we're walking around town talking do we need to tell you beforehand we are being quiet or are you going to assume no one's going to overhear us that's actually a really good point. When you're at war, concepts of like divination and scrying was really going to fuck up the entire thing. Yeah. Kyle, are there any other challenges you can think of? Uh, no, actually, you know, I think James made an excellent point. Yeah, is if you are going to play a knight, if you are going to play a party of all knights, right? Um, how are you going to yeah, deal with the public perception of it? Yeah, I can't think I can't think of anything else other than that. I guess my big thing is like you don't have healers in the party, right? If there's no clerics and there's not like how are you shoehorning a bard in? Like you could do it, but it is really set up to be mages and paladins and fighters and stuff. So like getting a druid or a cleric in here with divine magic feels a little odd, right? Like I really do feel like if you're playing in Dragonlance, you have to play in Dragonlance because if you want to be a you could be a tiefling druid if you wanted, but that really doesn't fit the campaign setting, and you probably shouldn't fucking do that, right? Not if if you're gonna yeah. play this, you should you should play it right. Do you know what I mean? Otherwise, mm. you're not getting the experience. Yeah, I guess you're just gonna have to make up for it somewhere else, right? I, like that's basically what I had to do uh, when we were playing Candlekeep because we all rolled for our party uh, classes. Yeah, and it was warlock, warlock, sorcerer, wizard rogue Oof. yeah so Oof. i just had to keep throwing healing potions at them <laughs> no kidding that was the squishiest party that ever squished oh man it was brutal um james how do you feel about the blurring of tiamat and takesis and bahamut and, and paladine do you care at all do you would you rather keep them separate no i have no cares it doesn't make much difference to me we do it in our own or religions and on earth like greek and roman so zeus and jupiter they're the same guy but different yeah so i see no issue with it gives them a different power so that makes them a bit stronger gives them a new flavor but they're the same person kyle do you care at all uh i mean i I think it adds a little bit of truthfulness to it right like legends change uh gods are reinventing themselves especially when they leave and then come back like are gods really static throughout time uh i think i think it asks some interesting questions so i i like it it does make it a, a little tough because i mean there is a future episode where we talk about the dragon gods and i gotta tell you it gets confusing when you start digging in through the lores because yeah. i mean but that happens after 190 bucks right there's really, going to yeah. be confu- like confusing conflicting information throughout things um so I'll also ask, like, depending on your perspective of looking at these gods, right? You might, two people might be looking at the same god, but they might be seeing it differently. I also, if I can be honest, it's 2023 when we're recording this. 
We live in the fucking age of the multiverse where it is in every goddamn story. If we're not time traveling back to fix the issue, then we are hopping through the multiverse and fighting alternate versions of ourselves, right? That's in most media that, that we see. So this shit doesn't mm -hmm. bother me. I think it's an easy enough concept for modern audiences to get their brain around. And if it's confusing, at this point, I have my own head canon about what is actually important in the Batman mythos. And let me tell you, him having a fucking son with Ra's al Ghul's daughter is not in my fucking head canon. And it's been around for like, God, over 15 years now. But like, nah, I'm, I'm uh, the homie, don't play that. I'm not, I'm not doing that shit. So, um, James, would you plane jump after the end of Shadow of the Dragon Queen? Or would you stay in Dragonlance? Does the setting have enough of a draw for you outside of the campaign setting? Heavily dependent on DM. Fair. What if would you DM, DM the need Lord, to do? Then sure, I'll stay in the world. But if they don't, there's no point. Okay. Kyle? I'm not going to plane shift it. If I'm going to play Dragonlance, it's going to be a Dragonlance game. And we either stick with that campaign, and then it ends, and then we go to something else. Or we just have something else. Because, I no. There, it's too much. I, there, I, I, I think that there's enough darkness and tragedy in this world to keep exploring and finding more shit to do after. You might be able to, in your homebrew game, undo the cataclysm, put the world back, get rid of the blood sea, right? Do whatever you need to do to, to find the hope again, to bring the gods back. That sounds like a level 20 kind of campaign, right? And yeah. And that's going to be long after the that Dekesis has been driven back to wherever the fuck she came from, right? And besides, it gives me the opportunity to get to level 20 and then fight using the avatar of Tiamat stat block that we have in other modules. Like, I, I can play with this now, right? So um, before we uh, wrap this episode up, though, let's cut to our last ad break. If you've been inspired by the conversation in this episode, please feel free to reach out and share your creativity and ideas with us and the rest of the community. You can reach us on Facebook and Instagram or on our subreddit r slash it's a mimic. Also, if you're feeling particularly generous, please follow and subscribe and leave us positive reviews, likes, and comments. Engagements like that help us pop up on search engines and keep this show running. Any final thoughts or inspirations? Um, I'm, I would want to play in this. I don't think I want to DM this. I, I love the, I love what I've learned about it. I think that it can get really, really deep. I don't want to be responsible for running a war game. Um, yeah. I don't know how fifth edition is really going to handle that without opting to bring in mini games. And that's kind of my complaint about, about D and D, you know, in the first place. Um, but it's just not good at everything. It's not a good dating simulator, despite the best efforts of my fucking players. And it's not a good war <laughs> simulator, right? Like, it's it's got its time and place. And I, I'm curious to see how how people handle this version of D&D &D with the board game involved and a very clear beginning, middle, and end with mass combat in it. Like, you go from battle to battle to battle in this. Um, it's interesting. I, I don't hate this, and I feel like Dragonlance was the right setting to play with this in. You guys have anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up? Yeah, I mean, honestly, there are some things out of it that I like and that I would steal for DMing my own game. Um, but it just, as a whole, it doesn't quite grab me as a D&D &D game. I think if you put it in another kind of um, format, 
it could work a lot better. Yeah. But it does have it does have some cool aspects to it. But yeah, I think you're right when you said that, you know, it doesn't it's not really set up for the big battles, right? And maybe yeah. if you are mixing in the board game, I don't know enough about the board game to say that for sure, but yeah. Um it it does feel weird as a Dungeons and Dragons setting. It feels more generic fantasy, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. What a weird note to end an episode on. <laughs> I, I, I'm no clearer on whether or not I like or hate this campaign setting. Um, I know that I like some specific pieces of lore. I fucking love Lord Soth, right? Yeah. And like there's some really cool shit. Like I I think the campaign that fifth edition put together is a decent narrative story because I've flipped through it. And the Warriors of Crin is an interesting model. Um, but I like Aberon a fuck of a lot better. Yeah, I think with this, yeah. it's very dependent on the DM and party you're playing with. Like with the right DM and right party, this could probably be the one of the one of the funnest campaigns you'll ever play. Yeah. But if you're missing one of those elements or a player decides to throw a wrench in the gears because they're having a bad day, it'll ruin it for everyone. It's it's like when you have people over for board game night, right? Like depending on who's there, sometimes you're going to play Scythe and Risk and shit. And sometimes you're going to play Twister, mm -hmm. right? It's still board game night, but really depending on who shows up and what the agreement is, you're going to have a radically different experience. And this feels like a radically different experience than standard Forgotten Realms fantasy D&D. Yeah. Okay. You know what? That's an excellent point. You, you know what my issue with it is it doesn't feel like there's any sort of middle ground, right? There's you, you pick one side or the other and that's it. There isn't a lot of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Variety. Yeah. It, right. In terms of sides, right? Like it's, it feels You're very fighting. black and white, like it's good and evil, right? Yeah. And some people fucking love that, right? There's a place for that in narrative storytelling, yeah. right? Absolutely. And, and this is a good example of it, but that's not why I play D&D. I mean, that is why James plays D&D, but he just plays the evil side of it, so. Most of the time, the rest of the party doesn't know. <laughs> we all know by now. <laughs> well, as a player, yes, but their characters don't. <laughs> I feel like and you use do, subtle spell fucking meta of them. <laughs> I feel like you use subtle spell on your own evil cackling. <laughs> so that's all for this discussion on Dragonlance in 5th edition. Make sure that you subscribe or follow and check back regularly to see what inspirations and insights we'll have for you in the future. Next week, we'll be looking way, way, way up at some of the largest enemies in all of 5th edition. Thank you for listening to another episode of the It's a Mimic podcast. If you'd like to support us, we have a donate button on our website www.itsamimic.com, a store with some It's a Mimic merch, and a Patreon. This episode and others can also be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube. I recently discovered we're on iHeartRadio as well, and most other mm -hmm. podcast apps. Thanks again for listening to It's a Mimic, where you never know what you're gonna get. This has been an It's a Mimic production. Please check the show notes for this episode to see links, time codes, and credits. And don't forget to reach out and share your own inspirations. I really don't know how to feel about Dragonlance. No, neither do I. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's not for me. I don't hate it, but I don't love it. Yeah, it's not my Nothing, setting. like, grabs me. Like, so there's certain aspects of it that get me, but...
Lord oh. Saul will make an appearance in my homebrew campaign, but he's gonna like walk through a portal and show the fuck up, right? Like maybe a yeah. good campaign for someone who's coming from a Warhammer type game for D D for the first time. That's a good point. You know, someone who's coming from classic fantasy tropes, this might yeah. be a good intro to D D. But once again, you'd have yeah. to have a good party of very experienced players prepared to play that game. And a very experienced dungeon master that can handle the kind of intricacies of yeah. running these fucking combats. And I don't know. There's a lot to it. Like, and there's not a whole lot of room for dick jokes. No. Yeah. That's why you need real to have an experienced party that is there to play, knows their characters, not going to take 20 minutes to remember how they can swing their sword three times. I feel like you two would be really effective players here, but I don't know if you'd have fun. No, I wouldn't. I can guarantee that. But if the right person or the right group, I'm willing to forego fun for a couple of weeks to help someone get into it. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, uh, yeah I, honestly, I'm, I'd am i be into playing it. I'll, I'll make my own fun. Right? Fair. That's the <laughs> issue, Kyle. <laughs> if you could start making your own fun, but leave your pants on, that'd be great. Uh, well, then I have no idea where to start. <laughs> <laughs> That's so ugly. <laughs>